You're listening to F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen. This is episode 52. It's been a year. <laughs> so cool. Uh, it's episode 52 with Sarah Marino and Ron Cascarosa. And uh, man, what a special episode. I've been wanting to get Sarah and Ron on the show ever since I thought of the idea of having the podcast. And we finally found a way to do it. Uh, we actually did it in person, um, which... I think makes for a much better podcast. So I had a great time um, and we covered some really fantastic topics, um, including how Sarah and Ron met and how they got into photography, um, intimate and abstract landscape photography, uh, the power of exploration, uh, their Iceland guidebook, um, sharing of photo locations, uh, the role of workshop leaders to use their influence for good, business models for monetizing photography and self-publishing, and women in landscape photography. Over on Patreon this week, uh, we had a great conversation. Uh, David Kingham and Jennifer Renwick were also uh, with us. So Sarah, Ron, David, Jennifer, and I talked about uh, the lifestyle of living in an RV and and a teardrop trailer as photographers and what that's like and if you are ever interested in doing that, um, tune in because it, you'll learn a lot about what that's like. Um, just wanted to thank everyone who's been subscribing on Patreon. It's really helping out the podcast a lot. I can't thank you enough for it. I super, super, super appreciate it. Thanks so much. I've got uh, more stickers coming and maybe some t-shirts as well. So hopefully that'll be a nice surprise for y'all. Uh, as always, reach out to me on social media, Matt Payne Photo, Matt Payne Photography, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. Thanks so much, and thanks for tuning in. Hope you enjoy this week's episode. Peace. Sarah Marino and Ron Cascarosa, it is awesome to be with you today in person to record the podcast. It's awesome to be here in person with you. Yeah, this will work out good. Yeah. <laughs> better, than, uh, better than the phone. Yeah. Over the interwebs. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, um, I've only recorded a couple of the podcasts in person, but it's definitely a much more intimate and just a better experience. So, and I think it translates better onto the podcast itself so oh we will prove you wrong today (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah okay so um i wanted to start out with i think most people listening probably know of you um but don't know you so uh tell tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves like how did you guys get into photography and i'm really curious to learn the story about how you guys met and became a power photo couple (laughs) (laughs) Uh, photography. So for me, it was basically trying to, like most people who started when I did, it was about 2005 or so, it was trying to document experiences in nature. So like hiking on these trails, it was actually birds. I was trying to photograph these birds that I would always see, these songbirds. So I got a a normal, like a 20D camera with like a, whatever the the kit lens was was like a 24 millimeter and that obviously didn't work well for birds and so uh, so I kind of sat in my closet for like a, a year or two I'm like I have all this expensive stuff and I'm not using it and then I finally got it out of the closet again and started getting into the more creative aspects of photography and, and that's sort of where it took off from there I think my story is pretty similar to a lot of landscape photographers or nature photographers is I was just, I was interested in hiking. I was a backpacker, started bringing along a camera, and it seemed like a natural extension Mm -hmm. to my interests. Uh, I had a book that had really nice landscape photos and just wanted to figure out how, how do I get from my horrible photos to those better photos that I see in a book? And it became an odyssey. Um, And for me, it's one of the few things that's kept my attention over many, many years. And at the time, I was in a super stressful job. I was going to graduate school full time. And landscape photography was the only, like, mental outlet that I had where it was just, I felt like it was meditative. I was calm. I was in a place that I 
felt good about myself and that feeling just kept me engaged and it's endlessly challenging. So here I am years later doing it almost on a full-time basis. Yeah. So it's, it's been probably the best thing that's happened to me. And since you asked about how we met, Ron and I did meet through photography. We were both pretty serious photographers beforehand and we didn't really know each other. We had a mutual friend, Kave Tavakol, who Kave and I both lived in Denver at the time and decided to plan a fall colors trip with his friend Ron, who <laughs> I hadn't, I didn't really know. Kave skipped out because Kave was masterful about maximizing his vacation time and decided that he wanted to do the next weekend with us instead. And Ron and I ended up spending that first week just photographing together. The only thing about me that interested him was my cats. You didn't have any. <laughs> Still the case. These many years later, that hasn't changed. You didn't have any interest in my photography. You didn't have any interest in my job. I'm an introvert. I don't even have interest in myself. Brought so. up the cats and it was like we had something in common. So we've traveled as friends for a couple of trips through Colorado and then through Southwest Utah. And um, here we are, years later. Yeah. Anything you would add to that, Ron? Other than the cats. Uh, no, she perfectly encapsulated it. <laughs> so there's nothing I can add. That with, anything I would add would only detract from her excellent uh, recount of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one of the things that um, I know I appreciate, but I know a lot of other people uh, talk about with you guys is your ability to see um, abstract images um, pretty much wherever you guys travel to. And I, and I, and I think that <clears throat> I'm guessing that that's sometimes is born out of, you know, you go to a place and then the lights doesn't work and you're like, well, what can I do to actually take a great photo while I'm here? And then, and then you, and it sounds like you guys kind of fell in love with doing mostly just that. Cause that, I feel like that's your, your intimate landscape images is kind of what, people know you guys for nowadays so how did that all start and what what is it that draws you to that form of photography i think i think that's correct in that we wanted to photograph all day long not just at sunrise and sunset and we also wanted to photograph when the sunrise and sunset wasn't that good so i think for creativity i think having obstacles is actually great when things don't go as planned then you're forced to recognize okay what what are my options what can I do that just like hones your ability to, to observe observe the light that is there realize that there's subjects that could be like an inch an inch by an inch in uh, area or like smaller scenes and that kind of thing and just for me just find the challenge of trying to find these things is is and it's an addictive challenge it's like how's how can I make use of whatever light is present so I think that is one of the reasons we like those kind of things. I think when photographers talk about their field style, like what, what, how they plan their photography trips and then how they are when they're in the field, I feel like sometimes I hear those stories and I'm just like, I am like not that person at all. I'm totally opposite of how I think a lot of people look at kind of the ideal way of planning a landscape photography trip or shoot. Uh, like where people will spend a lot of time on Google Earth. They'll look at weather apps. They'll look at other apps about the position of the sun and position of different features in the night sky and all of those things. And that, I just am not like that at all. I have zero interest in, I pick up a map, I pick up a guidebook, I might do a little bit of research, and then we end up at a place really without a lot of ideas about what we're going to do, unless we're doing something like a backpacking trip where we actually have to plan and be prepared. But um, I think of my personal style as showing up, being observant, and wandering around. Like, I'm always curious about what's over the next hill or around the next bend or what's up above me or what's down below at my feet. And I just, I'd much rather show up at a place without a lot of preconceived ideas, without a lot of expectations, and then just see what nature has to offer. And sometimes Mother Nature is giving dramatic clouds and over a really interesting grand landscape, and that will make a great black and white photo. Or there are these really interesting details on the ground, or we found this 
we found a crazy patch of mud. Ron specifically found a crazy patch of mud in Death Valley, and we spent days photographing patterns in the mud. And like it's like when we planned that trip to Death Valley, our goal was not to find a patch of mud, but there was a, a big rainstorm. There was flash flooding that left behind these really interesting patterns of wet mud, which is something pretty rare to find in a place like Death Valley. And so it's like that's what. Death Valley was giving us on that particular trip, so that's what we were going to photograph. And I think that that trying to shed expectations and trying to trying to shed pre-planning and just showing up, seeing what there is to photograph and being able to photograph all day, like Ron was saying, is that my personal my personality and my field practices just go really well with photographing small scenes. Because you can do it in any light, you can do it at any place. You can find all kinds of amazing small things that if you're not observant, you totally miss. And by seeing those things, I think I have a much better understanding of the places we visit. I'm a lot more knowledgeable now about the ecology and plants and animals of the places we visit. And I think like all of that comes together to produce a portfolio of small scenes. Yeah, I think just to encapsulate that, it's... It's more just reacting to what's there rather than trying to force some preconceived notion. And I think that's, there are some people who do that, who plan to like every last detail and, it, and that works for them. But I think by having that kind of tunnel vision, you're ignoring other possibilities. And mm-hmm. so if you just go in with an open mind and just photograph whatever speaks to you, whatever interests you, I think you're going to have a more personal and creative body of work that results from that. I also think photographers that don't, that try to get away from having expectations are a lot happier photographers. Oh, yeah. That it's just a much more pleasurable experience. We have a friend who told us a story about... Uh, he was doing a fall colors workshop in uh, the Northeast, and a woman arrived on his fall colors workshop to take photos of waterfalls, but there weren't waterfalls in that area. She had this idea that her camera club was having a competition for waterfalls, so she had to come home with waterfall photos even though the fall colors were like the fall colors that you were perfect. It was like fantastic conditions. And she ended up leaving the workshop because she had waterfalls in mind. And I always come back to that story when thinking about expectations, like if fall colors, if nature is giving you fall colors, photograph fall colors. If nature's giving you small scenes, photograph small scenes that it's a it, photography. I think is a lot more fun for me just when I just, when I'm willing to see a really broad spectrum of yeah. opportunities. Yeah, well, I used to be that photographer that had these grandiose expectations of, you know, hiking to a destination and having just the most ridiculous sunset that you've ever seen in your life. And then, of course, like, nothing happened. And, you know, I was, you know, just mad and go back to my car and, like, <laughs> I don't... And then, like, months later, maybe get the camera out again because I was so discouraged by it and... Um, the last couple of years, I don't know if it's been through reading you guys' articles or just following other people that are shooting more of these types of scenes. I've been trying to open myself up uh, to that kind of style, and it's really, for me personally, it's paid off because, um, like, last year, last fall, I went to Silverjack, and, like, you know, everyone was down below at the reservoir, and, yeah, the conditions were kind of, eh, whatever, so... I was like, well, I'm just going to hike up this trail for like five miles and see what's up there. And I didn't even plan it or anything. And I got up there and I was like, oh my, this is the most amazing thing. I've never seen anyone shoot this before. So I think if you just be open to finding what you can find and if it's good, it's good. And if it's not, it's not. I think it really does open up like a whole new world of of opportunity. I think one of the lessons that you just shared around exploration is also a really important lesson. Like the icons are icons for a reason because they're amazing scenes and that they're definitely worth photographing and it's often pleasurable and fulfilling to photograph those places, but there's so much more. And in a lot of places, if you just, if you follow a trail that you're unfamiliar with or if you, in a place like a desert where cross-country travel is common and you just you say that patch of shiny stuff off in the distance, that could be interesting. You never know what it will be. 
sometimes you find things that keep you entertained for days. We, this patch of mud that we went out to in Death Valley, we went out to it five or six times. And I could have gone out to it five or six more times if we didn't have to, <laughs> to leave. So yeah. it's, it's just that kind of thing where if you have an open mind and you have a spirit towards exploration and curiosity, that those are some practices that can lead to more fulfilling photography experiences. And I think it's common for photographers when they're starting out to want to, they see these shots, they want to replicate it, and they kind of get in that mindset. But I think over time, a lot of photographers like Sarah and I don't really find that as fulfilling. You know, we're showing up to places that other people have shown up, taking similar compositions. And the results is photos that don't really say anything about you. You know, it's just like, well, you happen to be at this iconic spot and you got good conditions. You know, it's like winning the lottery and taking credit for it. <laughs> so, um, which would be nice if, if we want yeah, to win the lottery, the lottery, we should try to work on that. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just being open, dropping preconceptions, exploring, I, I, it's just a much more fulfilling way for me to photograph and start to. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, so one of the reasons why we are gathered here is to, um, and I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want people to accuse me of having a conservation podcast, but um, it's, I think it's an important topic uh, for landscape photographers. Um, and, you know, we're gathered here to talk about those issues with other landscape photographers here in Colorado. And um, I know that one of the things that you guys have talked about in the past is, um, you know, you published a kind of a location guide for Iceland. And, and then I think you had a little bit of remorse in, in doing that. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about about that experience, why you wrote the book, and why you have some remorse about it. And well, maybe I that's, I, that's my word, so if that's not the right word, tell me. But Well, we can <laughs> dive into that a little more. The reason we wrote the book, and this was in 2013, is because when we went there our first time in, I think it was 2012, there weren't any really good guidebooks in terms of things photographers photographers would find useful so like we've been here enough times that we can you know we could write a book that we wish we had for other people and and back then I think sharing social media there was Instagram wasn't a thing Facebook was was a thing but it wasn't like a big deal 500 px was just getting started at that point so this so it's sort of a different world that we launched that book into and mm-hmm. the world has changed since then and you know, people, one thing we found out is that you can't really communicate ethics in the book. You can say, you know, don't walk on the moss, don't do this. But some people, they don't care about that. They just want to get the shot. And so some areas in our first edition that were sensitive, we went back to and noticed the impacts of sharing those locations. So we're like, well, this isn't good. So we removed any location that we thought was sensitive. Um, from our Iceland book and also our Death Valley book because they are both released about the same time. And I think going forward, um, because we're living in a world where, where things can get trampled and shared and copied and people are incentivized to, you know, basically fall into the same group aesthetic and do the same compositions, that we're probably not going to ever write a guidebook again just because the world that we live in, you know, it's... Uh, People, people just don't treat things with respect and it's hard to convince them to do so in a book. And I think with a lot of places, like one particular place that we had in our Iceland book, we, I think it, it doesn't matter if 90% of people are respectful. It's 10% that can do tremendous damage. Uh, on our last trip to Iceland, we were leading a workshop there and we went to two of, we took, It was a small private workshop, and we took the people we were leading to two specific locations that had previously been in our ebook. And like Ron was saying, the at one the moss was completely trampled, and then the other it looked like a public restroom had exploded. There was toilet paper everywhere. There was people had just gone to the bathroom on the moss with no effort to cover it up or to pack it out. And those were two places. I don't think that our ebook was responsible for those two places becoming popularized, but the fact that we played some role in that, just I have a lot of guilt around it. And I think that the challenge for me is 
my, I feel like my life calling could be writing guidebooks for photographers. I think it, my set of skills and interests, I like being resourceful. I like being helpful. I enjoy the research part. I enjoy the writing part, the photography part, obviously. It's like I have the right set of skills and our I feel like both of our ebooks, we've gotten the type of feedback feedback that makes it clear that people really appreciate them. It's like I could make a really happy living doing this and really comfortable living doing this. And on the other hand, some days I just like I just want to delete these off the web and never sell them again. Even though we don't have sensitive locations in them anymore, it just it does feel I feel ambivalent about it. I feel like on one hand we're helping people and we're providing useful information. And then on the other hand, I have a lot of regret about including a couple of locations in both. And I think, like Ron was saying, we wrote both of these in a different time. Sure, sure. So it's, it's things have moved really quickly over the last couple of years. And people use information differently. And information is shared differently. It can go a lot faster, a lot, a lot further, a lot faster. And so, yeah, we do have... I think the main lesson learned is if you're sharing information on the internet, know that there are consequences and that it's, that it's not just easy to say, well, it, it'll get out there anyway. So if I share it, some, if I don't share it, somebody else will, or, well, I'm, there are lots of arguments for sharing information. There are lots of arguments against it. So we could go on and on about all of those. I just would say that it is a dilemma. And if you're sharing information, just know that there are consequences and that you might not want to feel responsible for your role. And don't feel like you have to share information. Some people have a sort of entitled attitude that, like, where was this? And we get emails like that quite often. Or like, you know, we we don't feel like we can share this location because it's, it's a sensitive location. Or also, just try exploring for yourself and see... Like, you can get fulfillment out of finding new stuff for yourself. So some people, they don't, they're weekend warriors. They don't have time to photograph, so they want, a, like, a sure thing. But I think for us, like, having the joy of discovering something new is something that a lot of people don't do not do and aren't aware of. And so if we can tell them that, just, just try this, try just walking down a trail or across country in the desert and see what you find, I think that's a, it's a more fulfilling experience. So, uh, what do, what do you guys feel like the role of the workshop leader is in this new era of photography? Because I know you guys have taught workshops, and we've just spent a whole day yesterday talking about um, conservation issues around landscape photographers. And I know Sarah, you were pretty outspoken about workshops. I've been pretty outspoken on the internet about my beliefs about workshops. I'm not anti-workshop. I just wish that uh, people were more responsible workshop leaders and um, so what is your take on that? Well, I'll first say that I think workshops can be so inspiring and can really change the path of a landscape photographer. So on the positive side, um, when I first got started in nature photography, I took a workshop from Mark Adamus in the Pacific Northwest, and it changed my life. I don't think I would be sitting here if I hadn't taken that workshop. Uh, seeing him in the field and his bold, his boldness around thinking about exploring and just being different and trying to kind of push the envelope, both in the field and then with his resulting photographs, that was the first time I was exposed to those kinds of ideas. And I, so I don't think if I hadn't taken that workshop, I wouldn't be the photographer I am today. So by sharing that story, I do want to say I think workshops can be really valuable. Sure. And we have a lot of friends who teach workshops. So we've taught workshops ourselves. So anything we say here isn't meant to say workshops shouldn't exist. <laughs> um, right. No, exactly. But when you see a busload of 20 people pull up, and, and line people up and you have a workshop instructor shouting instructions that I don't think is necessarily good for the land and I don't necessarily think it's great for the students so when we when we're talking about nature photography and conservation and the impact that photographers have on the natural world I think that's a place where workshop leaders can play a really important stewardship role and advocacy role 
and providing a good model for how students should behave. So uh, small groups, like keeping your group small, especially if you're traveling to sensitive locations, spending a lot of time imparting outdoor ethics and teaching people about Leave No Trace, and then modeling those practices yourself and holding your group accountable and teaching them the language of outdoor stewardship. Um, I, I think those are some of the first things that come to mind about the role that a workshop leader can play. Uh, I think also being an advocate for the places that we visit, uh, and I think part of that is following the rules. So if, if there's things, protecting the places we visit is more important than the shot or, or having, from a competitive perspective, bringing people to the most sensitive locations because they're exotic and they're new. Like, well, if that's damaging a place, then maybe, maybe you shouldn't be bringing people to those locations and just thinking about some of those issues uh, because as a workshop leader, people are in a position of leadership and they're in a position of, in, of influence over people and using that influence for good. Because from my perspective, photographers are having an obvious impact on the natural places we visit. We're drawing people to them uh, due to our photography. We're encouraging people to get out and explore, which is positive. But the number of people in some of these places, it's, it is having an impact and that we as photographers have a role in, in communicating values and ethical principles. And when you're one-on-one -on -one or with a small group, you can have a huge influence on how people practice nature photography. So take that opportunity to, to be a force for good among a really complex current situation. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sarah said it. I think... You know, when you're a workshop leader, there's some conflicts because you want to give your clients a good experience and want them to be happy. But maybe doing that might damage the areas you're photographing. That should really be your priorities, protecting those areas. Because there's plenty of places you can take them that, that are still good that wouldn't have that impact. So I think just, just being aware of what you're doing and how you can have a positive influence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I agree. I, I think you guys hit the nail on the head. Um, all right. Well, switching gears a little bit, um, I was curious if um, you would like to talk a little bit about uh, different business models for how people can monetize their landscape photography. I know you guys have a, a different model than most people have. Um, and I think people would be curious to learn more about that and why you've chose to go that path. Do you want to start? Um, sure, I can start. So we were just talking about workshops. Um, we don't like doing workshops. So <laughs> that's part of that. We don't like doing 11-day international workshops that are super high pressure. Well, okay, I won't say that we don't like doing <laughs> workshops, but we would prefer not to have to do workshops if we don't have to. Um, so given that, so that's a constraint. Or maybe it's not a constraint. Maybe it's a, a like a liberation. Like since we don't do that, how? What are our options in terms of generating some income from photography? And I'll just state that I do have a full time software development job, so it's not like we don't need photography income in order to like pay the bills. So that's gives us tr tremendous freedom in terms of what how we choose to monetize photography. Um, so given no workshops, given that Sarah and I are both decent writers. Uh, and that we have a large volume of photographs and a lot of ideas, some of which are correct, some of which <laughs> might not be. But uh, so for that, like education, how can we teach people about like creativity, our location guides, obviously we mentioned before. Um, so so ebooks, ebooks is a way that we can monetize our skill set and have a passive income that doesn't really impact our travel schedule or our what we do in our day-to-day -day life. We're not, like, we don't have to be at a certain location at a certain time to do a, a workshop. So that gives us more flexibility in terms of uh, where we are and what we photograph. So that's that's our primary income right now is, is through eBooks. We also do some image licensing, but that's fairly unpredictable. It'll 
you'll get like some huge request out of nowhere and then like the next year not get anything. So that's not something that we'd like count on, but it's nice when it happens. Mm-hmm. I think that the, our main lesson in working on monetizing our photography is that now is such an amazing time to be a self-publisher because there are no, that you don't have to worry about traditional gatekeepers anymore. So when we visited Iceland for the first time, uh, Ron and our friend Kave, who we traveled with, did a tremendous amount of research because there was no other research available. Uh, when we got back, we're thinking, we wish, we're, we're going to create the guide that we wish we had. And we both had a big enough audience. We had a small mailing, or we developed a small mailing list. Uh, we So if you can learn in design, which is a, uh, the layout software that we use for our eBooks, <clears throat> if you can use a service like MailChimp or ConvertKit to develop an email list, you can use social media channels to help develop your audience. Those tools cost something like $75 a month, $100 a month. You don't have to go to a publisher and convince a publisher that your idea is worth investing in. Uh, we were just able to come up with an idea and create income that helped us buy our Airstream trailer two years later. Um, and so that Iceland ebook that we, we came up with an idea that we felt like was a unique need that among nature photographers. And then we built that into... Uh, we now have a couple or two location guides, and then we have some other educational ebooks. I have a course on black and white photography. We have some post processing videos, and all, these are all self created, sitting at a laptop with very inexpensive tools, and that is incredibly powerful. And I think it's it's very exciting to be able to be a writer that's essentially in control of your own destiny. We don't have to worry about publishers. We don't have to worry about editors, um, and all of those traditional gatekeepers that exist. So the ability to create tutorials and, and information for your audience, like it's just a tremendous opportunity. And for us, I think I enjoy workshops a little more than Ron does maybe. Um, and I wouldn't mind. Which teaching. is weird because I have such a great personality. <laughs> I should like talking to people. I, I want to maintain that if we, if we advertise some workshops next year, that it's something that we actually want to be doing. Well, if we do it, it's because we will want to do it. <laughs> right. But, but the, I think... Go ahead. Yeah, the other thing I was going to say is that these type of products don't have a lot of risk. Like if you're doing art shows and you have to have a large inventory that you have to pay for, if you're publishing a book where you have to order a set number of... You know, there's there's an inherent risk there with, with writing digital products or creating digital products. The only risk is that you've used your time. And so what? You've, you've learned something at the end of the day. Either way, so there's there's not that that risk that risk that you would have in other types of income. And now that we have eight or nine, I don't know exactly how many products we have, but we have enough where they they can they sell on a consistent enough basis that we actually make a decent monthly income with almost no effort. Now that we have all those products established. And then when we are more active on social media or more active in sending out our newsletters, it's we're making a solid income through photography, and it's almost entirely passive at this point. So for photographers who are thinking about how to diversify their revenue sources, if you do have writing skills, uh, developing ebooks and tutorials on unique topics, like I'm not encouraging people to to just see what's currently selling and try to create their copy of it, but instead like really sharing your vision and your the, the advice that's been most important to you, the things that have had the most important impact on your photography. If you feel like you have an, a unique voice and the writing skills to go along with it, it's our experience at least has suggested that being self-publishers has been a pretty positive experience. So what does that process look like in terms of... Um from design to publishing and how do you like I'm assuming you have to find a way to host the content and collect the money and all that stuff is it pretty straightforward or um so the actual like the website portion and like accepting payments and all that kind of stuff it's actually a lot easier now than even like five years ago or especially 10 years ago there's all these services um we're using Squarespace which has some built-in payment stuff and Shopify 
so there's all these services you can use to host your products, to host your videos, um, to accept payments with PayPal or credit card. And so I think that kind of stuff and like all the cloud services makes it really easy to, to get started in this kind of thing. You don't have to be an expert on this kind of stuff. So I think that's, Sarah could describe the process of actually creating an ebook, which is... Which is long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know, to go into detail, yeah. I, I was more curious about the that aspect of it, like making sure, like, because I, I think every time I've seen one, you know, like it takes you to a kind of a server site that then you can download, but like you have to, like it, that somehow it knows that you're the person that paid for it and all that stuff. Yeah, so, <laughs> so we're using Shopify to actually like fulfill our products and and do the payments and it's all integrated in our Squarespace site so you can combine different things and have it work. Squarespace also has um, the ability to accept payments using their system but they you can't host large videos which is hard. Yeah, videos are the complicated. Hmm. If you have large videos, that's the the delivering large videos is the more complicated piece. If you just want to sell ebooks, selling ebooks is super easy and very affordable. Yeah, it's just a PDF that's like a hundred megabytes or whatever. Cool. So nice. if you can, if you, so if you, most photographers naturally are going to already know Photoshop, so you're going to be able to process photos, InDesign, knowing how to like some basic graphic design skills, or paying for that service if you don't have those skills yourself, and then. Uh, the ability to pull together that content and then market it. That's the part that we always don't do quite as well on. Yeah, we don't know how to market it. <laughs> We just know how to create decent products that no one buys. No, people <laughs> buy it. Um, but yeah, marketing, because we, we don't like self-promotion. It, yeah. it, it feels sleazy, like like a used car salesman just trying to push your stuff like like look at me look at my product look look i know look, i look. hate it too yeah i did it's just it doesn't come naturally for us and we also don't like being on the receiving end of that those kind of emails but yeah so mar- so marketing is not our strong point so ask someone else about marketing yeah <laughs> as we've talked about matt since you and i are both nonprofit people working in the nonprofit world <laughs> those skills don't necessarily translate perfectly to marketing a photography business but Right. Now I remember um, I used to teach workshops on night photography, and it was like every time I tried to advertise it, it just felt sleazy. You know, like come join me. It's, you're gonna learn something. Like yeah, it just it always felt just I don't know. Like I don't. I'm not a big fan of self promotion. Yeah. I wish people would just say, oh, I. I like you, and I'm gonna buy your stuff. I wish they would just discover it by themselves. <laughs> right? What's wrong with you, people? <laughs> There's only like 80 trillion pages on Google. Why? Why are you not going to ours? Right. <laughs> uh, and I think I've I've come more to terms with it now that we we hear from people how valuable our resources are, and I don't. That sounds <laughs> that sounded kind of haughty the way I just said that. I didn't mean it like that. But knowing that people appreciate our resources, I think has made me feel more comfortable in with the marketing piece. I think I just I just need to do it more subtly to be comfortable with myself at the end of the day. It's definitely mm-hmm. easier to market something that you actually feel good about. That's mm-hmm. for sure. If you're if it's something you're trying to peddle something you don't really like, then yeah, it all falls apart. We don't do that, but. So we're we're lucky that we have stuff that we can actually stand like, behind. Stand behind, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. But we've made some decisions about our business model for 2018. So I've been doing nonprofit consulting and photography, essentially both three quarters time, and that's, that hasn't been working. Like I'm sick of working as much as I've been working. So I'm going to be doing photography full time in 2018. And in thinking about the things that I the standards and values that I created for my nonprofit business, I want to be able to translate those to uh, my nonprofit consulting business. I did make a profit through my non- nonprofit <laughs> consulting business. Um, not my, anyway. Um, well, I, well, I like to tell people nonprofit doesn't mean you make no profits. Yes. It's, it means it's a, a mission oriented, my mission oriented consulting business. Anyway, moving on back to photography, that I think for 2018, that we, to be true to ourselves and to feel, feel good about our business model, 
I think that we are going to focus more on the things that we can control. We've participated in a lot of kind of bundled products and third-party selling things, and I just, I feel like I'd rather invest my time in promoting the things that we've developed that fit with our vision of landscape and nature photography, and we don't want to do many sponsorships. We don't want to teach a lot of workshops. We don't want to be promoting other people's products that we might not have as much confidence in. We just want to, I think we want to focus on having control of our business and selling the things that we've created to the audience that we've developed. And even if that's a small audience, that that's what I think will be fulfilling at the end of the day. No, I think that's smart. I, what I like to tell people is I, I would rather be, I would rather have a hundred really enthusiastic uh, fans and customers than like 20,000 people that are like, yeah, I like your pitch. Yeah, mm-hmm. <clears throat> having an engaged audience versus just playing a numbers game where like, well, 1% of my gigantic audience might be interested and so I'll just grow the audience and, you know. Right. Like we were asked to participate in a bundle, like a, a big photography bundle. It wasn't just nature photography, it was a bunch of other things. And the requirement was that you had to send out an email every day and you had to do you had to do a number of social media hits. I'm like, I don't even post. I post on Facebook like twice a month. <laughs> There's no way I can post five five days in a row about this photography bundle. And it's that kind of thing that it's like when it turns people if, off. I mean, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. People don't like seeing that stuff in their feed. I mean, the the thing is though, if you have a large enough audience, you even if it's only half a percent of people who who that's enough. You know, it's like spammers. For some reason, spam still exists because there's one in a million people like, oh, Nigerian uh, prince. This guy sounds legit. Really? You know? I really want to buy Viagra from Canada. Yeah. <laughs> you know, NAFTA screwed it all up, so we have to go. I don't know. I think the, the bottom line of this entire conversation, though, is because I came from a really value-based field and mission-oriented field, I don't necessarily have the the competitive instincts that will make me the most visible photographer, have the biggest audience. But I feel like at the end of the day, we're building a business that is fulfilling and is is in line with our personal values. And I think that feels really good. So yeah, we don't have a, a mailing list with 50,000 people on it, but we I feel like we're building a, we've built a business that I'm proud of. And that even if we might not have as much revenue or as many followers, it, at the end of the day, it still feels like we're making part of our living through photography in a way that is fulfilling. No, I think that's, I think that's more important than maximizing your rev- revenue. Because if, if you were to focus solely on maximizing your revenue, I feel like um, unless you're, you have a black, dark heart, I feel like... <laughs> In a year or two, you would just not feel fulfilled from that. Um, me, me personally, I don't know. Maybe some of the listeners out there are like, "Well, some people made the money." Yeah, it's like because money's quantifiable. It's like I made this much, so uh, so, and they tie their identity to income, whereas we tie our <clears throat> identity to just having fulfillment. You know, feeling good about what we're doing. And we are fortunate that we've we've tried to be really financially responsible and eliminate all of our debt, and so we do have. We have, we've made choices that make it possible to say, oh, we don't want to do workshops, so we're not going sure, to. Sure, sure. So we will, we're very fortunate to be in that situation. Right. No, I mean, where we can make that choice. Right. I mean, some people don't have that capability, and I understand that. Um, but I think that's a really cool thing that you guys have built. It's it. also so sad to see photographers who have taken something that they absolutely love and turned it into something that they hate. That we've, I think we've come come across quite a few of those people, and yeah, it's like how how do you balance like your passion and your business, so that you can do both without impacting the other. Yeah, because if you lose your passion, then then what was it all for? You can have a passionless job, doing something else, and probably make more money and less stress, and not have to be hustling all all the time, and then be able to photograph whatever you want to photograph. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. That was my biggest fear when I thought about doing it full time. Is it just hating it? Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I'm not doing that. But 
I, that was a huge fear for me too, like because uh, of the business stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you just grow to hate it, and I've heard lots of stories of people that they hardly take photos anymore. It's all business all yeah. the time, and and like, there are some people like we have a friend John Barclay who he he's based on the East Coast, and he is a natural teacher. Like he he's able to command an audience with his workshops, and he's motivational and. He's the type of person that he, so he ended up, uh, he had a business, he ended up quitting that business and moving into teaching workshops. And it's like his life calling. He absolutely loves it. So he's the kind of person that, that teaching workshops is, is fantastic and it right. really makes it more fulfilling. It's whereas, not just a means to an end. Right. Yeah, it's whereas, actually the whole enchilada. Yes. Where <laughs> some other people, because it feels like that is the business model right now for photography, they're teaching workshops and it's soul sucking. Mm-hmm. And it, I, so it's this conversation, it, it's workshops aren't the only answer. There mm-hmm. are a lot of other business models right now around self publishing and doing things like podcasting, like you're doing sure. um, other yeah. things that can make a viable career when you've put together a diverse range of income sources that workshops aren't the only answer if that's not the thing that you're best at right no absolutely so shifting gears a little bit (laughs) um one of the topics that i thought would be interesting to cover um with you sarah and ron you can pitch in from your perspective as the from the kind of the third party observer because you probably hear lots of stories from sarah but um Uh, I've noticed that um, you have kind of taken it upon yourself, Sarah, to um, promote and kind of elevate other women in landscape photography in terms of like writing about them and showcasing them. And I was curious what's what's behind that and um, why do you feel like that's an important thing to do? Well, I think coming from the nonprofit world, so I'm talking a lot about my experience <laughs> in the nonprofit world today, but I think it's really relevant to this uh, this topic is 85% of my colleagues in the nonprofit world are women. And when I look at my close group of nonprofit friends, <clears throat> there are CEOs, there are women who are in significant leadership positions. Like some of my friends are CEOs of major organizations when before, with like around the age of 30. And just the nonprofit world is such a great place for women to be visible, to be, to have strong leadership skills. And then moving into the landscape photography world, it feels like we're invisible. And I think that one of the, one of my goals in helping other women be more visible, like I wrote a blog post that's probably the mo- our most trafficked post on women in photography. It's a list of more than 200 and some women doing amazing work right now. And I created that list because I was sick of seeing conference programs that didn't have a single woman represented or uh, like the all the camera companies that have maybe one or two women on their ambas- in the, as part of their ambassador programs or a particular tripod manufacturer who publishes a magazine that, ha- that I don't remember seeing a woman featured. And it feels like coming from the nonprofit world where women are so visible and so accomplished to coming to the photography world where I have all these friends who are doing great work and I don't feel like they're getting necessarily the recognition that they deserve. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily intentional. I think it a lot of it comes from the fact that when you're putting together a conference program, you talk to the people that you know, and if you don't know any women photographers, they won't necessarily rise to the top of your list of people to ask. So uh, I think my goal in doing things like interviews with other women photographers on our blog or that, that blog post or trying to share the photography of other women is because I do feel like women are doing equally high quality work that we deserve to be more visible in this field and that I want women other women photographers to see that that this particular person has been successful being a full-time photographer so by seeing that story you can see that that's a possible path Mm -hmm. for you and uh, that if 
you want to have a family and you want to figure out like how can I have children and be a full-time photographer are there other women who have already done that and that you can learn from that person and see inspiration in their story Mm -hmm. um so like I'm I'm not what a person that's like I feel like I've been (laughs) I've never been harassed I've never had a I've heard some stories, some pretty bad stories, but I personally have always felt really welcomed by my male colleagues. So it's interpersonally, it's never been a problem for me. I think it's much more of a structural issue where women, for whatever reason, aren't being elevated to the top echelons of the nature photography field and that we as women just need to be more visible and say, recognize us, we're doing good work. And Mm -hmm. like we have messages to convey and... Uh, like when when we hear from some of our friends that more than half of or even more than half of workshop participants are women that there's a lot of women photographers out there and I I just I want to see us be more visible in the in this field yeah I think that's probably the bottom line mm-hmm. not because we're women but because we're good photographers right accomplished photographers right do you have anything to add no I agree it's just having the same opportunities that male photographers have like it ultimately it should be about the quality of the work, but if women are not are not being uh, like listened to or, or featured that have the same quality or higher quality, that's an issue. Mm-hmm. So, well, and I think to your point, um, I don't know if this plays into it at all, but I think there are fewer women in landscape photography, and so um, I think that makes it even more difficult for them to percolate to the top of people's minds in terms of what they remember or what they saw. But for me, like, I was, I don't know, I always had the opposite. Like, to me, they always stood out more, I guess, for for whatever reason. Like, just because of all of the things you just said. So I think it's really cool that you're trying to get more of an awareness about there, about the women that are producing excellent work. And I... I this is a topic that it could be debated endlessly, but like, <laughs> I, I personally don't want to be thought of as a woman photographer. So mm-hmm. that's something that Me I, neither. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't want that to be the reason that I'm asked to, to do something. And I know in a couple of cases that that's like, I've been asked to judge a competition because I was a woman and they wanted more diversity. So those kinds of things I really appreciate, but I also, I also don't want to feel like, like I'm being elevated just because I am a woman. Uh-huh. So it's, it's always a really fine, it's a hard balance, I think, that I don't want people to be like, well, she's a great female photographer. Right. Couldn't you just like, be a great photographer? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I, have, I have a lot of internal conflicts about this topic, about like the reason that there aren't more women at the, the top level of, of nature photography, because there are a ton of women photographing. So what what prevents a woman, an ambitious amateur from taking that next step? That's a I don't have an answer to that question, but I I guess I just I want to be one of those people in this field that if I have any power and I have any influence among us I have a small amount of influence. I want to use that influence to raise up some of my peers who might not otherwise uh, be as visible mm-hmm. and I'm not saying I have a tremendous amount of influence I don't I know that but I, I can use the little bit that I do have um, to encourage like uh, if I'm speaking at a conference I can ask the conference organizer well have you thought about inviting these other people who you might not be aware of right. and the, or if somebody asked me to teach a, a course at a college like a summer photography course I can recommend other women photographers for that kind of job because they might not be on the top of other people's lists. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, cool. So you guys have listened to most of the podcasts, I think. Um, so you know what's coming. Uh, so based on the name of the podcast, F-Stop, Collaborate, and Listen, uh, what advice do you have for other photographers, particularly around your... Per, uh, your vision and the way that you kind of see the world today. I can go. Um, I think my biggest advice is just find what interests you and do it and ignore, try and ignore other voices or other people. 
try to make it a personal experience so that you can have something that's fulfilling for yourself and not have all these other distractions that kind of get in the way of creating unique work. Uh, I, I think since we've talked a lot about business, that I think one of my most important lessons learned from my nonprofit consulting community is I was part of a, a group of consultants who we, we referred people to one another. We shared a lot of business information. Uh, we had this really collaborative group, and we always talked about how we're not competing over one pie, we're growing the pie. And I think that's something that in photography, I, I don't feel as often. And that, like, I'm not competing against other photographers. I don't, I don't feel as if I'm competing for business or I'm competing for clients. I'm trying to grow the pie. Like, I'm trying to develop my own audience, and that's not taking anything away from other people. Yeah. And that the idea... So the F-stop, collaborate and listen. Collaborate. Like, we, we've done partnerships with friends and done collaborative photo photography sales and that kind of thing. And I think the more, the more that we can think of growing the pie... Yeah, and the it's not, better this field is. It's not it's, a zero-sum game. Yeah. Like other people's successes don't take away from you, and your successes don't take away from them. Like there's there's room for everybody, especially if people are doing their own their own thing. You know, it's there's no like if someone posts an amazing photograph, I feel good because they've contributed something good to the world. I don't feel like oh man, I wish I would have done that. Oh, that's I'm I can't gonna you throw know, away my camera. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna yeah. <laughs> Like, I think it's good. I th it's, it makes me happy, you know, seeing other people do good things. So, yeah, just getting out of that sort of competitive mindset, because I don't think creativity and com competitiveness really align. I think, I think it can, what happens, I think, is like in some like photo sharing sites, you get the competitiveness kind of makes people converge to the same kind of work, because they're all trying to reach that, that common denominator where they can their work is like more popular because it fits some some group aesthetic or whatever so yeah anyway i'm just rambling at this well point. it's like that old saying a uh, high tide rises all boats yeah i mean i think that's kind of what you're trying to say is that it's not it's not about competition it's about collaborating and and celebrating the success of other people <laughs> one of the things i appreciated that you did a couple months ago where i posted um, that I was a 500px ambassador and you know it's a dying site and I know that but you know I was interested in seeing what I could do if anything and I mean it was very low risk for me and I just put it out there and like all these people were like that site's done that site's lame it's dead what are you doing and like you were the only person who was like can we just celebrate that Matt had a success like yeah, that, yeah, thinking back, that post made me so mad. <laughs> like, I... And, like, I'm, I'm cool with digging on that, because that's fun. <laughs> right? It is but fun. this isn't the place for it. It is fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, who cares if 500 picks is dying? Like, it's exciting for you. Like, so, uh, I very much feel like the idea of collaboration and growing the pie and, like doing your own thing, there's tremendous opportunity. We're in one of the most exciting times to be a nature photographer and taking advantage of all those opportunities instead of feeling like somebody else's success is taking away from you or that there's a dominant style that you have to conform to. You don't. You can be successful being your own person right now. You might have a smaller audience. You might, have, you might not have a traditional business model, but there's tremendous opportunity and thinking about it as growing the pie and doing your own thing. Like that that be confident in in who you are and and the path that you're taking. Yeah. Because even if it's different, it might be more fulfilling and you might be you might have more success. Well and that's how a lot of um, the most well known photographers today started. They went off and did stuff that was a little bit different than someone else and then everyone else was like that's amazing. I mean, you think about like Alex and Ray gets drone shots. Now, like everyone's trying to copy his drone shots. You know, it's like that's a whole other topic of conversation. <laughs> but um, I think when you uh, give yourself the permission to do something different and unique, and don't care about what other people think or say, I think that is 
I think that's powerful advice. Yeah, and you have to be willing to take risks and willing to fail because you're not going to grow otherwise. So if you're too afraid to do something that might not be accepted, then you're going to end up doing the same stuff that's already been that people are already doing. So. Yeah. Like some of my my favorite photos of my own are little portraits of black and white plants. And I'm putting together an ebook of my plant photos. And it seems it's something that a couple of years ago I would have never had enough confidence to do because I would have felt like I'm supposed to be doing grand landscapes under colorful skies because that's what's most popular. And I've actually found that a lot of people appreciate my little black and white plant photos. Yeah. And I love them myself. So it's like I'm doing a portfolio of this and I'm excited about it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's awesome. Uh, that's I kind of came to that same conclusion a couple of years ago. Um, and I most of the photos I take nowadays, although next week will be different, but most of the photos <laughs> I take nowadays, it's like compositions that no one has thought of and it may not be a great composition but it's my composition Mm -hmm. um and i've had to you know work out the details in the field and and that for me that was the fun like that was yeah and that's it's my shots and probably no one else will have that shot because it's like in the middle of a field and twelve (laughs) thousand feet or something like yeah (laughs) it's more than 10 feet from the car Right. <laughs> Even though we've taken... Oh, I have tons there's... of good roadside stuff, man. Absolutely. I have Absolutely. No, no qualms about that. I don't think you have to be like in the middle of the wilderness to take compelling photos. No, I think you just it have just... to be open to seeing things differently than Absolutely. what you've come to expect. Yep. We Which... did spend like three hours at a garden, at a cactus farm. Yeah, <laughs> nurseries. I, t- I tell people that most of my plant photos are just in the Home Depot nursery. You know, as long as, long as your, your subject matter is small enough, no one has to know that you're. You know, just you just have to convince the Home Depot employees that you're not like competition from Lowe's or something. Trying to there you go. <laughs> corporate corporate espionage. Yeah. Like, so, <laughs> so uh, which uh, photographers would you like to hear on the podcast? So we came up with a list of five people. Uh, the first one is Michael Fry, who is, uh, he's most well known for his Yosemite photography, but he, he's worked for the Ansel Adams Gallery and has all kinds of really fascinating stories about the evolution of photography in Central California and his experience. He's, he's just a really thoughtful, interesting person. So we think people would have a lot to learn from him. And he's a great educator. Him and his wife, Claudia, are two of the nicest people we've ever met. Nice. Uh, The second one is Charlotte Hamilton Gibb. And she's another... uh, She has a beautiful portfolio of Yosemite photographs. She does great stuff. She has... The quality of light in her photos is just... It's daydreamy while still being fully realistic. And I... Some of her recent work has just been some of the most inspiring photography I can remember seeing. And I haven't heard much. I read some of her blog posts and her writing that she does, but I've, I've never heard an interview with her, so I think it would be really interesting. Do you want me to continue? Yeah, you're doing good. Well, I'm not going okay. to interrupt um, this train. <laughs> so Jackson Frischman and Greg Russell are two people that we've known for a while, and they're another. They're separately both very thoughtful, and they both have really interesting portfolios of work. They both do creative personal work in places that a lot of photographers don't go. They go to the to wilderness areas where people don't necessarily photograph a lot. And both of them have really thoughtful writing on the role of conservation in photography and conservation issues overall. Since public lands are such a top button issue right now, I think both of them are communicating about that issue in a way that really makes you think about the issues of public lands right now in the context of history and then also the context of being a photographer. Um, so I think there are two people that ha- would have a lot of interesting things to say just about their travels and their photography and conservation and public lands. And then the final person is Colleen Miniak Sperry. We talked some about fear and the role that fear plays in keeping people from maybe becoming their true self or following their photographic vision. And I think Colleen is somebody who, just in her writing, she exudes enthusiasm and 
com- being comfortable in her own skin in a way that a lot of photographers, I think, struggle with. She left a corporate job and has been a really successful full-time photographer uh, doing, I think, having kind of a non-traditional business model. She's written a couple of books, location guides, and she's just, I think she has an inspirational story. So those are the five people we, we would recommend for the podcast and for your listeners to, cool. to learn more about. Awesome. Well, I've definitely heard of most of those people, but not all of them. So thank you. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks, guys, for the spending your morning with me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun listening to you guys talk. Thanks for having us on. We appreciate it. Yeah.